Listeners, this is Gerard Robinson from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome to another soon-to-be wonderful episode of The Learning Curve. You know that we bring together great guests every week to talk about education, social policy, history, the classics, all kinds of subjects. And of course, none of this would be possible or even fun without my colleague, Kara. How are you? Hey, Gerard. I'm here and I'm so much fun. All the time. Ask my kids every day. Every day. <laughs> every single day. No, I'm doing well. I know we've got a lot of great stories this week and and a great guest. And the sun is shining, which it rarely does at this time of year in Boston. So all's good. All is good. Well, kick us off with uh, your story. Oh, well, actually, my story in my mind falls in the all is good category, Gerard. I want to actually... Before I get to my story, I want to ask you a question just for our yep. listeners. Start. Do you think if you and I were chatting, I don't know, dinner table politics, would we agree on everything, do you think? No. No. <laughs> Shockingly, no. We'd agree on some things, right? But like, exactly. We might have a difference of opinion. Maybe I'd lean a little bit one way and you lean a little bit the other. But we're still friends, yeah? Exactly. We still get along, talk. We don't yep. fight. We don't hate each other. Don't try and pass mean laws to keep me out of your house. Stuff like that. Exactly. Well, okay. Mm -hmm. So there's this NPR Ipsos poll out. So the title of the article, it was actually from the M NPR website, is parents aren't really tuned in to the culture wars. And this headline was just music to my ears, my friend, because let me tell you something. We've talked about it on this podcast. We have been thinking about what it means that our country, its we seem to be in this place where people can't talk to each other. <laughs> if you listen, mm -hmm. you read social media, if you listen to the news, it feels like people just can't figure out how to get along. Yet, I've always felt that in my personal relationships, I happen to be, I know that this like goes against the grain, but I happen to be a person who doesn't always vote the same way her close friends do. It's, mm. it's, it's amazing. And I still go out with them and have a beer or a glass of juice. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and we all get along. And sometimes, here's the most shocking thing. Sometimes I learn things. And sometimes I even change my opinion when I learn things from my friends. So I loved hearing that to most parents, these culture wars that we've been talking about and thinking about in education are, according to this poll, basically background noise. And what I mean by that is parents really don't care because parents care about what's going on in their own school. Parents care about their kids. And yes, there is some number of parents who are dissatisfied with some of the things going on in their kid's school, but it's certainly not most parents as some would have us to believe. So I wanna just run through this really, really quick. And there are some things that were really surprising to me. The first one, this one was not surprising, is because this is like a traditional American pastime saying, I think there are problems with the education system in this country, but nothing's wrong in my backyard. My school is okay. Uh, yep. Yeah, we learned this decade after decade. The interesting thing about this phenomenon is I think it doesn't actually capture some of the parents that know that their schools aren't okay. And we can talk about some of the things that are going on here in Boston with a school just recently actually closed because there was an investigation that revealed long-term sexual abuse among other things going on in the school. That's another mm. show. But that I think what this is reflective of is that 
when parents answer polls, they're likely thinking about their school in terms of the people they interface with, such as their teachers. And parents generally might not love every teacher, but they have a lot of empathy for teachers because parents are parents and they know what their kids are like. So let's just leave that there. But the other thing that I found really interesting is that most parents in this poll say that they actually feel well informed about the curriculum at their children's school. And so I think part of what we've been hearing from both the right and the left is parents have no idea what's going on in the classroom. You don't know what's being taught in your schools. Well, that might be true to some extent, and you don't know what every utterance teachers say, but this poll shows that most parents think that they have a pretty good grasp on the basic things that are being taught in their kid's school, and that's probably because schools and teachers talk to them for the most part. They could probably do more of that, but also they talk to their children. So I just thought this article was really interesting. And my big take here, oh, actually, let me tell you the third thing. There was a striking lack of partisanship in this poll, according to NPR. And so what they said was like, there wasn't a way in which you could see answers reliably break down among people who identify as red or blue. The only outliers were people who did not identify themselves as Democrat or Republican. Rather, they identified themselves as cultural conservatives. And so I thought that that was really interesting because I think that you push back on me here, Gerard, but I think that a lot of the culture wars are certainly being led by cultural conservatives. And the question is, are they getting disproportionate airtime? Maybe yes, maybe no. You might tell me, no, I don't know. But my big take on this is this. I'm personally heartened to hear that to most parents, this is background noise. I wish that to most policymakers, it would for the most part be background noise for this reason. In this country, if we look at NAEP results, most kids still can't read on grade level. In this country, if we look at NAEP results, most kids Mm -hmm. still can't do math at grade level. Mm -hmm. What Actually, we can fight all we want about what should be taught in history class, but I would be surprised if most Americans can even name more than like three presidents, including the sitting, right? Wow. I think that we need to be having conversations about teaching and learning. And I think that the other thing we need to do, and nobody will be surprised by this, even if you are surprised by my politics, and that I can say this being a person who leans blue, if we had more choice in this country, parents might actually be able to choose schools that are more aligned with their cultural views and values, while also, I hope, teaching a high quality curriculum, right? So if I am a person of a certain faith, why shouldn't I be able to go to a school that is aligned with that faith, that mission, that vision, that value, instead of thinking all the time that public schools need to be everything to everyone, which by the way, is impossible. So I don't know, Gerard, that's where I'm at. I might have said a lot in there that feels objectionable to you, but I want to hear it. (laughs) Well, first of all, I'm glad you started off with the culture war perspective, partly because the founder of the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture, where I'm a fellow at the University of Virginia, is Dr. James Hunter. And in 1991, he published a book called Culture Wars. And part of the subtitle includes the word education. And he talked about families and schools and parents. And so when you think about poll you just mentioned and how families are feeling, he was talking about that going back to 1991. So I would recommend our listeners take a look at Culture Wars and his follow-up book, uh, The Death of Character. You and I both like polls. It gives us insight into the lives of regular people. And so as I hear what you said, 
I think about Phi Delta Kappa. They've been polling families about schools going back to 1969. In a study they published in the last year, they identify some of the same things you mentioned about families saying, you know what, I think my kid's school's doing well, but I think we need to spend, for example, more money. And when you ask families how much money do you think they're spending per student, parents usually are way under what the actual amount is. When you talk about school achievement at their school, how well students are learning, their intellectual acumen, they'll say they're doing great. And yet we'll look at NAEP and identify some are doing great, some are not. So I think a lot of it is driven by in my house, in my school, but those are other people's problems. So I like that you mentioned that. In terms of the red or blue, it's heartening to hear that there's a purple, maybe a fume coming from a study like this where parents are saying some of that is background noise. I'm just interested in what's going on in my schools. I do think you're right that some of the noise is coming from what I call the mouse with the loudest mic. And some of that, in fact, is coming from cultural conservatives. We see that in critical race theory, which I've addressed as a Republican, made some recommendations to members of my own party in an op-ed sometime last year. But I also think it's the cultural progressives and the cultural liberals who are also doing the same thing on the other side. And I think the leak from the Supreme Court of where the court may lean in the upcoming decision about abortion is just one example. So I do think there are more parents in the middle, both blue and white, who just aren't the ones we're often hearing from. Even in Virginia, where there's a cultural war right now, not only with CRT, but also about certain books that we should look at, the role of parents and families. When you look at Northern Virginia and you look at Thomas Jefferson High School, which, in fact, I believe it was last week or the week before where you identified the top schools in the country, Thomas Jefferson is considered the top public school. It's a school with diversity, both economic, racial, ethnic, not as much Hispanic and Black as some would like. But then they changed the rules to try to do what I often say is color-code classrooms to make people feel good about racial democracy. On the left and the right and the middle, some people are getting things right or wrong. So that's a great story. I don't think there's much that you and I disagree on this. I think some folks on my side of the fence are getting some things right, but we often don't give them a chance to be heard. I think there's some things that 1776 unites. I think there's some things that they add that are sensible to the debate, but because some of them are not only conservatives, but black conservatives, we tend to call them Uncle Toms and Latinas. Oh, are you allowed to be that? Yeah, no. No, Jared, I want to thank you because one of the things I should have said is that it's not lost on me that in an NPR piece, they would talk about cultural conservatives and leave out (laughs) the really loud, extreme voices on the left that often take the headlines as well. And I think that that is really, really important. And so, yes, cheers to the purple. Cheers cheers to the cheers to the middle. We should all be able to live somewhere there, at least have a coffee together. So Exactly. Well, your story about what people think about their schools is a great segue into my story. I also think it's a feel-good story. And it's from the Volunteer State, Tennessee. Governor Bill Lee, had an opportunity to do something that many of his colleagues, whether they're one or two-term governors, with the exception of Virginia, which is a one-term governor, will probably never have a chance to do in his or her time. That is to sign legislation 
to change the funding formula. That's something that he actually had a chance to do. His commissioner, Penny Schwinn, was a part of the announcement. So you and I and our listeners know that a couple of years ago, we had University of Virginia professor of education and law, Kimberly Robinson, on the show to talk about school finance. And from that conversation, she talked about the importance of school litigation, 70s, 80s, 90s, and how they got us to where we are today. Well, I think that's a good backdrop to talk about what's taking place in Tennessee. So go back to 1992, where as part of a federal or part of a lawsuit, the state decided to create a new funding formula. And in that funding formula, there were 45 components that were put in place that you had to walk through in order to determine how much money schools were going to receive on a per pupil basis. Well, fast forward to two years ago, the governor and a group of stakeholders said, listen, we've got to do something different because A, people on the left said the funding formula is antiquated and we've got to change it. People on the right said, guess what? Our funding formula is antiquated and we have to change it. So at least there was bipartisan support that we needed to change the system. Naturally, how much money students should receive per student, how much schools should receive, of course, was a debate. But rather than simply rely on lawmakers to do it, the governor and his team were part of a much larger discussion where they went throughout the state, brought together a group of people, and even participated in a statewide transparency uh, consortium conversation, which also has uh, national roots, to say, what should we do? You had people like one of our colleagues who we know, uh, Victor Evans from 50K in Tennessee, who in fact, last fall, when I was in Nashville, was talking to me about this issue. So shout out to Victor for his work. But people said, we've got to do something different. So after all the things that go into politics take place, here's what we have. You had a 26 to 5 vote in the Senate to move it forward. It was a 63 to 24 vote in the House. It wasn't strictly on party lines, although we know that it's a strong red state. Six Republicans actually voted against it, as did five Democrats. With the new law, they're going to move away from the 45 components as we know it today. It was basically called the Basic Education Program. The legislation that he signed is called the Tennessee Investment in Student Achievement. I like the fact that he used the word investment because when you hear investment, it at least symbolically means accountability. It also means removing students and schools up from being solely a receiver of funds but an active player in the investment and articulation of moving forward and a focus on student achievement. There's a debate about what schools are for. Well, guess what? Student achievement is part of it. The state's going to invest $6,860 per student. Some people think that's too low. Some people think it's about right, but it's where they're going to move. So with this legislation, Tennessee is going to join at least 33 states and the District of Columbia that use a student-based formula. Prior to this law, Tennessee was not a part of that. In fact, neither is Massachusetts. So they're moving toward that. Number two is going to add an additional $9 billion in state and local funds to schools. So I think that's a move in the right direction. And third, it's going to give lawmakers, parents, teachers, and educators more insight into exactly how much funding is going into schools. Now, naturally, we have legitimate questions about students of color, students in low and under-resourced areas, or students with disabilities. Well, I had a chance to take a look at data from the Department of Education 
and they identified that per pupil spending, even before this law, for students with disabilities would range as low as 30,000 to as much as seven. And so even without this law, we know that certain students need money. So I think it's a step in the right direction. Uh, congratulations to the commissioner, the governor, and the legislature. Moving away from one system that's been in place for 30 years to a new system is going to take work. Some of those, of course, funding models won't kick in for another year. But it's a good feel-good story. And according to data from the National Association of State Budget Officers, who've identified at least 27 states in fiscal year 21, had a higher percentage of its money going to K-12 and higher education than other categories, second often being Medicaid and Tennessee not being one. This is a step in the right direction, but want to get your thoughts. I say so happy for Tennessee. I think this is huge. And I have to get selfish for just a second and say that my great colleague, Matthew Joseph, spent a lot of time helping think this through and helping folks on the ground understand why student-centered funding is so important and how it could work and how it's going to really benefit the state in the long run. Like you said, it is an investment. I think that our upcoming guest, Dr. Eric Hanushek, is very, very well equipped to talk to us about why education is an investment on which you can see a sizable return if you do it right. I think this is game-changing for Tennessee. Very proud. I wish that the Commonwealth would listen. I mean, look, the thing is, is that a lot of times states, they, as the distinguished Dr. Kimberly Robinson has told us, states will think about a funding formula and then think it's good for 25 years or 30 years or and not <laughs> not use all the tools that they should to assess the extent to which it's working and for whom it's working, et cetera. I think this is really important. Might I also add that a system of student-centered funding, it's good for everyone and it's also good for parents because what it means is that technically we should work towards a system where, and I'm not even just talking public versus private, just within public systems alone, where kids should be able to get the money they need for their education in whatever school they choose. And a student-centered funding formula is the first big step in that direction. So I love this story. Look at us, Gerard, too rather feel good stories this week. I think we should just give ourselves, we're just all sunshine and rainbows today. Well, this is an example of the purple people with the mic. <laughs> Legitimately, I love that. That's wonderful. All right, Gerard, as I said, our next guest is going to be with us in just a moment, Dr. Eric Hanushek. He is the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. And most folks will already know sort of the go-to person on economic analyses of educational issues. We are going to be speaking with him right after this. Learning Curve listeners, today we're very pleased to have with us Dr. Eric Hanushek. He is the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford University. He is a recognized leader in the economic analysis of education issues, and his research has had broad influence on education policy in both developed and developing countries. In 2021, Dr. Hanushek received the Yidan Prize for Education Research, and he is the author of numerous widely cited studies on the effects of class size reduction, school accountability, teacher effectiveness, and other topics. His recent book, 
The Knowledge Capital of Nations, Education and the Economics of Growth, summarizes his research establishing the close links between countries' long-term rates of economic growth and the skill levels of their populations. Ongoing research focuses on international variations in student performance and considers what differences in schooling systems lead to country differences in the skills of people. He has authored or edited 24 books along with over 250 articles. He is a distinguished graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and completed his PhD in economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Dr. Hanyashek, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thanks for having me. Wow, thanks for being with us. I know I have read a lot of your work and I think a lot of our listeners have too. And one of the things I appreciate so much about it is that it is something that even those of us who are not economists can comprehend. <laughs> and so <laughs> we were talking at the outset of the show about changes that states can make to recognize greater return on investment in education. And we're just, we're really excited to have you to talk through these issues with us. First of all, congratulations, I should say, on winning the Gidan Prize, which is also known as Education's Nobel Prize. And that was for your work on strengthening the bridge between economics and education. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about, first of all, how did you even come to the study of the economics of education very specifically? And what was it like to win this award for all of your good work? Well, the uh, first question, how did I come to study education issues? I probably shouldn't admit as an economist, this was not the end result of a rational process of planning my future, but it was more accidental. When I was in graduate school at MIT and had finished the coursework and was looking around for a thesis topic, the Coleman Report on Education came out, and that was the first major study of achievement of different kids and underlying factors. It was named after its main author, James Coleman, but the study was called Equality of Educational Opportunity. And it was really designed to look at what differences there were largely by race, but income and regions and so forth in education. And I think as part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it was designed to beat up a little bit on the states of the old Confederacy and show that things weren't very good in the old Confederacy. Well, Coleman did something very surprising. This was 1965 when he was working on this. He tested 600,000 kids in the country. He found out about what their families looked like from surveying the kids. And these are kids in different ages and grades. He surveyed principals and teachers in the schools and then he did some basic statistical analysis of what explained differences in achievement. The results astounded people in two ways. First, no study had ever had 700 pages of analysis of variance results printed by the U.S. government in the life of the union, I guess. But secondly, it seemed to say that the only thing that mattered was the family or maybe the other kids, the peers in the schools, and schools didn't really make much difference in terms of achievement of kids. Well, I was sitting there at MIT and thought, this is really a crazy result. How could it be that schools aren't important when we 
pay so much attention to schools. We put so much money into them. If they aren't important, we ought to be doing something different, I guess. I had a friend who was on the economics faculty at Harvard, John Kane, who snuck me into the back of a faculty seminar of about 75 faculty members at Harvard that were meeting every two weeks just to figure out what this report said and how to read this report. Nobody in the room quite knew how to do it. Senator Pat Moynihan, who was on the faculty at Harvard at the time, and along with Fred Mosteller, a statistician, ran the seminar. And so I sat in the back of the room and out of that ended up doing a thesis on education and agreed with part of the Coleman report, but not all of it. And once I finished the thesis, well, there were new things to do. And it's been new things to do ever since that time. And I just keep doing new and different things, trying to understand a little bit more about how our schooling system fits into society and affects everything. We can come back to any parts of that that you want, but I will respond to the second thing. What's it like to win the Yidan Prize? I was really thrilled by it because the kind of work I do has not always been well regarded by those in the education system. The idea of doing quantitative, serious analysis of schoolings and how policies affect things, things that were outside of the classroom, was anathema to many of the people in the education business. And so I take getting this prize as some sort of agreement that there might be something there to look at policies and how they affect our outcomes. Yeah, that's actually really amazing to hear you say that. Gerard and I were speaking about the phenomenon of many Americans just thinking of schooling as the thing that is right in front of them. Therefore, they can say that I think there's a big problem with education in this country, but boy, I love my kids' school. And I think (laughs) the same with thinking about the impact of sort of the really amazing research that you do that looks at systems, that looks at how what goes on outside of the classroom impacts, influences our systems and and what it means when those systems do or do not produce the outcomes that we need. It's just so critical for us to push forward. So I'm curious, what is it that you plan on doing with this 3.9 million funding? I mean, what is it that you can do that you haven't done already, Dr. Hanushek? Well, there is a cash award that goes along with this prize and they want to support research and doing other things. My initial reaction is is still the one I have. I haven't quite followed through on it, but my initial reaction was that it didn't make sense to just put that money into what I'd been doing. I had to do something different. What I am proposing to do is to actually try to improve education in sub-Saharan Africa and maybe Latin America. The idea comes from the work I did on economic growth. If we look at the economic growth of countries, that's what determines the future well-being. So the U.S. is richer today than it was 100 years ago because it's had basically the fastest rate of economic growth for the last century of any country in the world. Then you look at Africa or you look at Latin America and you see well, they're not that much richer than they were 100 years ago. They're a little bit richer, but their economic growth has not been very fast, and it 
hasn't led to much prosperity. You see a few cities in each of these countries that's doing okay, but the vast majority of these populations isn't. My answer to what's going on is very simple. Economic growth depends upon the skills of the population. Countries that have more skilled labor forces grow faster. They develop new products, they figure out how to invent new things, and they end up getting the rewards in terms of increased incomes and economic growth. Africa and Latin America and South Asia also don't have the schooling systems that support the production of a skilled workforce. And without that, in simplest terms, I don't think they'll ever grow or ever grow very rapidly. And so the idea I've had is to try to find ways that we could improve the schooling in these countries. And here I have something that you and Gerard might agree with. I think it's really hard for somebody to come in from outside and tell a country or a school district or a school what to do. It really requires a lot more knowledge of the capacity of the schools that exist, the demands that are there for them, and somebody who can really work to bring good ideas, but in the context of the local area. So what I want to do is very simple. I want to find some people that we'll call fellows that we can sort of improve, add to their human capital, add to their networks internationally, both within the geographic region, but internationally, so that they can bring good ideas about education to these countries. In simplest terms, I think that we know a lot more about schooling and education than is being put in place in these countries. The answer is trying to find out ways to do that. That's really heartening to hear. I have to say, um, my mentor, Charlie Glenn, who has, I think, as you know, done a lot in international education, sure. he would often say to folks from other countries when they would say, like, we want to learn about the American education system. And I would hear him say, well, don't take our bad ideas. Right? <laughs> I, love, I love the idea of building networks of people on the ground who, who know the culture, who are of the culture, too to bring good education ideas. I want to really quickly ask you, Dr. Hanushek, you note that these countries in many cases won't be able to grow their economies because they need to improve their schools. And one of the indicators we have of school performance is of course PISA data, so international data from the OECD. And you've talked about this much throughout your career. You recently led a discussion with Andre Schleicher from OECD. Can you frame for our listeners just even where the U.S. sits in terms of how do we compare to both these countries that we know the schools are really not doing what they need to do and those countries that have excellent systems of education? Where are we at? Well, before I answer that, let me thank you for bringing up the topic of PISA and international tests. When I was saying countries will only grow proportionate to the skills of their population, what we found is that the international math and science tests that exist, of which PISA, run by the OECD, is a good example, are pretty good measures of the skills that are important for a strong economy and for economic growth. 
many of the developing countries of the world don't participate in these tests. So you have to guess at whether they know anything or have any skills. But when they do participate, you see that they are dramatically different than the more developed countries of the world in terms of their basic knowledge of math and science. I should add the footnote. The PISA test is the Program for International Student Assessment, a test given to 15-year-olds. And you can think of it as taking a math problem, translating it into the local language, and sort of basically marching it around the world and seeing how many kids in different countries can answer a set of basic math problems. That turns out to be a pretty good measure of future skills that are demanded by modern economies. Now, the U.S., unfortunately, is slightly below the average of the OECD. The OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's really the club of rich nations. And we fall behind a whole series of other both developed and developing nations in terms of our performance on these tests. This, I think, is actually a canary in the mine that we should pay attention to this because it says that we might in the future have problems. In the past, we've been able to take care of this, right? We've been able to take care of it by importing people who have better educations from abroad and we're all immigration of skilled labor. Skilled people from around the world live next door to me in Silicon Valley. As long as we can keep that going, maybe we can make up for the fact that our schools are not doing so well. But I think that that's a real problem in the long run. And so the answer to your very simple question in a long-winded way is we're not doing so well, that we're behind a large number of developed and developing countries. It's time to stop competing with Greece and Spain and start competing with Hong Kong or Finland or other countries that do much better than we do on these tests. And I'm going to follow up on your reference to the canary in the coal mine, because you and I have had a chance to sit in rooms with Dr. Paul Peterson and others when we took a look at PISA data, also there's you know questions about TIMS, and it was always amazing how well we as Americans thought we were doing, and then we compare ourselves, you say, to the rich countries, it wasn't as great. But when we look domestically, you know, we spend approximately $800 billion annually, and when you look at NAEP scores and reading and math, things aren't that great. So with all the money we spend, all the legislative changes we've made, why has it been so difficult for us to improve basic student achievement? And what's the impact here at home and on our competitiveness globally? Well, I think the impact is huge. We are producing students that grow up not to be competitive with those from other countries. You can see it in California, which is one of the lower ranking states, the nation on things like the NAEP test, California students are not able to compete in Silicon Valley because they just don't have the skills that lead on. What's wrong? Oh, we have an institutional structure that does not really reward good performance very much. 
there's some rewards. We have limits on the amount of competition. And, you know, there's fights over charter schools largely because they offer competition to the traditional public schools. But for the most part, we are a nation of traditional public schools where they have a local monopoly and they keep doing things the way they always did. So we know, for example, that huge amounts of research has consistently shown that just having more experience of a teacher does not lead to more effectiveness in the classroom. And yet we systematically pay large premia to teachers when they get more experience. So we buy something that doesn't relate to their effectiveness in the classroom. The same, I should say, and this starts to annoy people, but the same is true for graduate education. There's a lot of work that suggests that just having a master's degree does not mean that somebody's going to be more or less effective than somebody, a teacher with only a bachelor's degree. So we have this institutional structure that is locked in a system that does not pay attention to the effectiveness of schools. We've got to get around that. Your example about California is real to me personally because I grew up in California. Uh, and I think about the fact that for the first time since the founding of California, the population has dropped and thus resulted in the loss of a congressional seat. Another economist, a colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute, Dr. Mark Perry, has got a great article about the number of people who are leaving California right. for states like Texas and Tennessee. And with that is often the economic intellectual talent. And in a state that's becoming, or at this point, majority minority, who can't even get a job, high paying job in Silicon Valley, you're bringing in international workers. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. So I'm, I'm glad you talked about that. Let's put that in perspective of the achievement gap. Our listeners hear that term a lot. It's bantered about by governors, presidents, even investors. What is the achievement gap? What's real and what should concern us or what even could even give us hope about closing it? Historically, we might trace things back to Lyndon Baines Johnson, president of the United States, who declared the war on poverty. An underlying strong element of the war on poverty was recognition that poor families tended to produce children who would themselves live in poverty and in themselves be poor in the future. And LBJ was concerned about the fact that there were large achievement gaps, both in school attainment and the knowledge that kids got and so forth, between families in poverty and those who weren't in poverty and wanted to do something about that. Well, work that Paul Peterson and I and some others have done has tried to trace the history of gaps between poorer families and better off families for the last 50 years. We can't quite go back 50 years in this, but we're looking at achievement differences. And what we find in a consistent set of different achievement differences is that the achievement gap hasn't moved. Maybe it's slightly come down in 50 years, but, but not very much. And that persistence means that there's going to be a persistence of intergenerational poverty, that these skills 
and knowledge are passed down from generation to generation. And so we have increasingly a generation of poor people. Some people escape that, but there are many that don't, that just go on from generation to generation. That is a huge issue that we can't keep going. I mean, that to me is not compatible with my conception of what the United States is and should be. Absolutely. And I've seen both sides of the fence. I'm the first in my family to graduate from college. Both of my Southern parents finished high school. I did not earn a college degree. I think about the men who were in my wedding, most of them with single mom, not married. And all of us now have graduate degrees. And then at the same time, families born in same situations, intergenerational poverty just moving forward. So it's unique. And the American mission, and I would say really the idea of the American dream, some people don't like that term, how about American optimism? There's something there. And I'm, I look forward to reading your research to help us understand that, because when you go back to Lyndon Johnson and the whole idea of the Great Society, and you mentioned earlier the Coleman Report, there's also the Moynihan Report uh, that talked about family structure, how much that played. Mm -hmm. And a year after President Johnson announced a war on poverty, he also announced a year later a war on criminals, a war on crime. And the correlation between crime, low employment, I mean, it's just so much of that goes in the conversation. Here's really the last question for you. You're doing joint research now to look at the achievement gap. Is that the work you're doing with Dr. Peterson and others, or is that something else? Uh, The work on the achievement gap is with Dr. Peterson. Um, Okay, so it is that study. Yeah. Right. So if you grew up in California, you must have started reading with whole language. Exactly. That was one Mm -hmm. of the examples of what California has done badly for the nation. It passes on bad ideas. (laughs) I understand that on many fronts. Well, let me end with this question, and it goes back to what Kara asked you about how you got interested in economics. Now, knowing what you know today, there's an Eric or an Erica sitting in a PhD program at one of our public or private schools across the country may have an interest in education. What words of wisdom would you share with Erica or Eric today about their work as an economist and how important it is in influencing how we think about economic competitiveness, the achievement gap, or just prosperity? Well, I think there are many ways to look at our education issues, but economics provides a structure to sort of orderly put data together and try to understand some of the key policy relationships and key incentives that we could put into place. And so I guess we all support what we did, think what we did was good, but I think getting some economics training, maybe not a PhD, but some economics training helps people to think about what we could do better. We do know the other side of this, is, which I've also looked at, and that is that what's the value of a strong education. And there's where much of the work of economists has gone into looking at the impact of what economists would call human capital on economic outcomes for individuals and for the nation. 
So I guess I should proselytize for more economists in education. But <laughs> I, I guess I'm not as hung up on that as I am on finding ways from whatever angle we can to improve our schooling system. I think it is the future of the country that we're talking about. And if we wait till it's become apparent that we're in trouble, then it's too late to correct in some sense. And so we have to begin now to try to put that together. No, I'm with you. It's important to our country. Opponents of my version of school reform often say, well, education is nowhere in the Constitution. But I have to remind both opponents and proponents that in 1787, at the same time, members of our founding generation were in Philadelphia initially arguing about the Articles of Confederation and then ditching that for a constitution. There were another generation of founders in New York who passed the 1787 Northwest Ordinance. And in that document is a following phrase, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind. Schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. And so if we want to continue this great experiment, schools and the means of education are part of it. The research that you've helped us as a nation think about matters. And I thank you so much again for joining us today. Sherard, you did it again. You did so much better than I did in expressing these views. That's a wonderful way to end. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Hanusek. You're quite welcome. The tweet of the week comes from Bangor Daily News in Maine. It's from May 2nd. Advocates prepare for Supreme Court to overturn Maine's religious school funding ban. And the Bangor Daily News says, but money won't start flowing to Catholic and evangelical schools without changes to other state laws. We've discussed the Maine case here on the learning curve. And let me give a thank you for Bangor Daily News for the tweet of the week. Yeah, well, we're all watching and we'll all be working to get those other state laws where they need to be <laughs> so that so the kids can go to school where they need to. Hello, Maine. Happy to come up there anytime. Beautiful. Gerard, we are going to be back together again next week, and we will be with Cass Sunstein. He is the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard Law School and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The World According to Star Wars. Did you watch Star Wars as a kid? You're going to laugh. I am one of the few people on the no. planet who's no. never seen one episode, one okay. show, one movie of Star Wars. Ever. All right, so that's a deal breaker. Here, here are we saying <laughs> that we're okay. And, we can get along. Here's the break. Disagree. Here's <laughs> the break. Yeah, I've never seen one movie. Not even with your girls? <laughs> no. Now, they've <laughs> seen it and watched. I'm like, this Mom's seen it and watched. I'm not American, Gerard. <laughs> hey, okay. won't be the first time. <laughs> All right. Until next week, my friend, your homework assignment is at the very least to watch Empire Strikes Back. Like, well, I'll just throw one out there. You don't even have to start at the beginning or the end or however those darn things go. Just pick one of them. Just meet Yoda and may the force be with you, Gerard. Nanu, nanu. <laughs> That's Mork. Take care. I know. <laughs>